We come early in the service this morning to the message and to the Word of God. And I'm going to be reading this morning from two different psalms, just the very last couple of verses of Psalm 39. Um, I'm guessing from most of us, it's not a psalm you've ever heard preached before. But as we come to Psalm 39 and Psalm 126, of which I'll read the whole of, let's listen. Listen to the word of God. Hear my prayer, O Lord, and give ear to my cry. Hold not your peace at my tears. For I am a sojourner with you, a guest like all my fathers. Look away from me, that I may smile again before I depart and am no more. And now, Psalm 126. When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream. Then our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue with shouts of joy. Then they said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us. We are glad. Restore our fortunes, O Lord, like the streams in the Negev. Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. He who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. Let's pray once again. Lord, we are grateful for your word, but in many ways it challenges us. Guide us as we think upon it now. Guide my words, guide all of our hearts and minds, for we seek you, your will, your ways, and your life in us through your word. We pray in Jesus' name. We're talking about lament this morning, and I want to tell you why, and why I think it's an important part of the disciples' life in 21st century Babylon, this series that we've been talking about, and also why I think it's important for us here at New Hope. But to understand that, we have to start back at the gospel, in essence, at the beginning. I I spent the first few weeks I was here in September talking about what the gospel is. And and I hope you've seen it everywhere through all my sermons and and the life in the congregation since. Do you remember the three parts of the gospel? You You can think of it as the outline of the Bible. Creation, fall, redemption... Or you can see it through a recent evangelism tool that is, is going around the circles of our, uh, of our denomination and, and way beyond our denomination as well. And it's called the three circles. And the first circle is God's design. The second circle is our brokenness, which we come to from God's design because of our sin. And then the third circle is the gospel. It's the good news of Jesus Christ 
that comes from our brokenness through repentance and belief. We come to the good news, and, we, and from there we recover from our brokenness and once again pursue God's design. You see the three circles, the gospel. But in the middle of that is our brokenness. Our brokenness, that's, that's a key part of our story. Even still, no matter how broken we are, we are not outside the reach of God's grace. That's the good news. That's the gospel. And while we live in the real realm of digital Babylon, we are more aware of our own brokenness in this world than any time before. In the, and not just our brokenness, but the brokenness of the whole world. We're more connected to it all and burdened by the weight of it all. And you can see that in, in younger generation, that it's the most pessimistic generation in American history, pessimistic that even, even that the world could survive. And we're left with the question, what do we do with this brokenness? Right now, right now, what do we do with it? First, let's look at what the world typically does with, our, with the brokenness of the world. And there's, there's, in essence, there's two options. There's, the first is denial, just ignore it, distract ourselves, and we, we can do that with everything. There, there is plenty in this world to distract ourselves from the brokenness of the world. There is endless entertainment right at our fingertips, moment by moment, and there's a million ways to numb ourselves from the pain. Or the other way is to lean into solutions, thinking that we have to be able to fix it all. We have to be able to fix all the brokenness of the world. And there's different ways that we can see this. One is the weight that we put on healthcare system to, to fix every ailment. And we fight tooth and nail to overcome, in essence, even our own mortality. Or another result is the politicization. Did I get that word out right? The politicization of everything. And in a secular world where this is, this is all there is, then we pursue solutions to all the problems with, with religious fervor. And, and we end up denigrating others who disagree with that same fervor because the stakes are everything. But you see the results of the near impossibility to compromise or work together or live together with those whom you disagree on even the smallest of things. It's been harder to be in relationships like we talked about last week. But the weight of, of, of trying to solve the fall and the brokenness of everything affects everything, in, in, including mental health, and it easy, easily we become living lives of anger or fear or isolation and anxiety. And all of that characterizes so much of this age. Because the fall, the brokenness of the world, it's, it's not just an intellectual challenge. It, it moves us to the depths of our emotions and our whole hearts. Now, nothing characterizes 
the effects of our brokenness in, you can see in, in movies, in our lives, or even throughout Scripture, nothing characterizes brokenness more than tears. Tears. Christians, Christians have another way to respond to the brokenness of this world, to the fears that keep us up at night, to the pain and isolation that makes us feel so alone, and the tears for all the losses and the hurts along the way. And it's neither denial, nor is it a belief that we can fix it all, that we have to. The amazing thing is, it is as much a response of, of, of our hearts as it is our heads. We have a place which we go with the weight of all this brokenness. And it is very simply prayer. It's right to God. And we see it. And to see this kind of prayer, we, we, all we have to do is look at the Psalms, the the prayer book of the Bible, the Psalms. Now, poetry and the Psalms are poetry. Poetry is different than prose. Prose passes information. Poetry, as Eugene Peterson says it, poetry is a way of using language that draws us into participation. He goes on to say, this is hard to get used to. Our habit is to talk about God, not to Him. We love discussing God. The psalm resists these discussions. They are not provided to teach us about God, but to train us in responding to Him. This, this poetry is prayer as our response to everything, to everything, but addressed to God. And it's not just or primarily the response of our intellect. It's, it's just as much our emotions in our will, everything about us that would pour out to Him. But this response, this form of response to the brokenness of the world and to our own lives rather than being a denial where we end up being controlled by the circumstances of the world or our human effort where we stuff our emotions and, and try to control everything, this is a third way. It is a way of trust where we turn to God. And the Psalms bring us into participating in a conversation with God. Tears. So, so what do we do? What do we do with our pain? What do we do with our suffering and our tears? The Psalms provide an avenue. They provide an answer. One genre of Psalms in particular is called lamentation. Psalms of tears. It is a lament when we turn our broken and afraid heart to God. It, it's interesting because there's more of this kind of psalm in, in the book of Psalms than any other singular kind of psalm. And it, and it kind of makes sense because nothing draws us to prayer more than our brokenness and our tears. 
Tim Keller, in a sermon on lament, points out three things that he sees in Psalms of Lament and that we see in particular in the two Psalms we read. He, he writes, expect tears, invest tears, and pray tears. And I'm going to use that outline. First, expect tears. The poet psalmist rarely focuses on the source of the tears. He's not about explaining what happened. It doesn't matter what happened as much as it doesn't matter as much where they came from because tears, they're, they're universal. We all know tears. And if we're talking to God, it doesn't really need a comprehensive explanation of why we're crying or, or broken or afraid. He knows. Psalm 126 starts with referring to a pastime that God had delivered his people. And they were laughing. They were happy. He doesn't explain. We don't even know what time he's referring to, what time of deliverance he's referring to. Maybe it was the Babylonian captivity. Maybe it was coming out of Egypt in Exodus or or even something else. It, It doesn't matter. At one point, God had done something terrific for his people. Dreams fulfilled. But now, now their fortunes need restoring. And their life is in a desert place. In a desert like the Negev, lifeless and and barren. And and we don't know what the particular circumstances are. But life just isn't what it once was. Lament Psalms dispel the myth that nothing bad happens to Christians, to believers. In this instance, the circumstances is not linked to in any way to their own sin and we should not always be trying to uncover our correlating sin to explain the things that are happening but simply recognize as as Keller puts it becoming a person of faith may lead you to weep more there's a metaphor in Ezekiel 11 and 36 and that's, that Paul reiterates in 2 Corinthians he says I will remove from them their heart of stone and give them a heart of flesh on the one hand it means we become people capable of love of real love of a depth of love that we've never known before but on the other hand that means we're more vulnerable and sensitive to evil and pain These heart-of-stone self-defense mechanisms of the fall, they're not meant to be a part of the life of faith. Now, we are our brother's keeper and will suffer the agony of loving in a broken world and many other vulnerabilities as well. And and let's just look at Jesus. Look at that, that perfect human heart of Jesus. He was always crying. He was described as a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And bad things happened to him and to those whom he loved. If we don't recognize the expectation of tears like Christ, it's easy to become bitter and a grumbling people wallowing in our hurt, our fears, or, or and our self-pity, saying, why is this happening to me? 
And we need to not be surprised by our tears. We can expect some. The second thing, though, is we invest our tears. There's an interesting metaphor in in the Psalm 126, 5 through 6, sowing with tears. Go out weeping, carrying seeds to sow. It's an agricultural metaphor. Plant seeds, and then later you come back for the harvest. In this case, we plant tears. Neither stuffing our tears as like... Sometimes religious people, we can try to ignore our own emotions. Nor dumping our tears, building an identity of tears and and heartache and, and living and wallowing in it. Rather, we give our tears to God as an opportunity for God to do an amazing work of redemption. There's an old book, Don't Waste Your Sorrows. And it's not, we're not meant to be masochistic to embrace sorrow, nor hedonistic to avoid sorrow at all cost. Rather, invest sorrows. In, in, in many ways, it goes from an agricultural metaphor to an economic one. We invest our sorrows, but the result is joy. And that, that goes, this, this joy goes deeper than just tears giving way to joy. That's the reason why Paul in 2 Corinthians 4 says, for our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. This this joy, this is a joy that is a product of the tears. No joy comes from avoiding tears. This joy comes from our tears, our hearts being changed. So how do we go about planting tears? How do we invest them? Very simply, pray your tears. Pray your tears. What is significant about these psalms and all the laments is that they are prayers. They are made white hot with a passion of crocodile tears, these these prayers, this poetry. And they come to God with the tears. And that's what transforms both the tears and the weepers. Once again, Keller sees that tears have three things in mind, the three things that we keep in mind as we see tears, the realization of God's grace. We also see the vision of his cross and an assurance of his glory. First of all, the realization of his grace, the first thing that has to happen even before you allow yourself to go to God with tears is to truly believe that it's safe to do that. That it's safe to do that. You have to know that God understands your heart, your fear, your loss and pain, and that it's safe to pour out your heart to Him. The end of Psalm 39, just like the end of Psalm 88, is a heartfelt expression that ends in doom. In doom. Most of the Psalms, no matter how desperate, they end in expressions of hope and triumph in God. But but not all of them. 39 and 88 end with having Psalm 88 ends with having no friends and only darkness. And this Psalm 39 ends with asking God to leave us. Go away so that we can have a little peace before we die. Now, 
That is a picture of feeling overwhelmed with grief and pain. And it seems like the exact opposite of what you should be saying to God. But it's here. It's inscribed in this book forever. And what are we supposed to do with this? How are we supposed to understand this as prayer? We're not supposed to pray wrong like this, are we? Derek Kidner, in his little commentary on the Psalms, says of the psalmist's request for God to leave him alone, he says, that's like when Peter asks Jesus to leave him after that first big catch of fish. He can't stand it. And he writes, the very presence of such prayer in Scripture is a witness to God's understanding. He knows how we speak when we're desperate. When you are passionate about something in agony from something, and, and all of us, we, we say dumb things. And the people who love you understand. Keller writes about this passage from God's perspective as if God was saying, it's safe to pray like this with me. It's safe to pour out your deepest feelings with me. In other words, Psalm 39 shows us where your deepest feelings, your anger, your tears belong. Where do they belong? Do they belong deep in your heart where you refuse to admit them or express them? Or do they really belong expressed, just dumped? I'm all for talking to friends. I'm all for talking to counselors. But ultimately, where your tears belong is not managed and packaged and manicured in some little confessional prayer. They belong in pre-reflective outbursts from the very depths of your being in the presence of God. If you don't feel safe with God, you won't come to Him with things that matter to you most with your tears. You'll either stuff them or dump them. But you won't take them to the one place that can transform them and you. He is the God of grace. He understands. Go to Him with tears that you may not even knew you had. and Open up the door to your heart. The next thing is plant your tears in a vision of the cross. How do you know he understands? How do you know he cares that he'll listen even when you're being stupid and and your feelings are out of control? How could he possibly understand? Ours is a God who became a man and suffered more than any other man. He is the one who cried out in the garden, my soul is exceedingly sorrowful, even unto death, meaning he felt like he was going to die even before he got to the cross. He knows what what it's like to look to heaven and feel like there's nothing there, that he'd been abandoned and forsaken. That's the reason he came. He can come to us even when 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 we're being stupid. And over the top. Here's the thing. He keeps coming to us even when we ask us, when we ask him to leave us alone. Because Jesus is the one who cried out for God and was abandoned. He got the abandonment that we deserve so that we will never experience complete abandonment. 
Even when we turn our face away, God comes, He listens, and He hears. There are all kinds of tears, all kinds of reasons we can get to this place of turning away from God. The the cross gives perspective to them all. There are tears of guilt. When you feel abandoned for your sin, the cross shows you the one who was abandoned for you. There are tears of self-pity, weeping in pain and grief and in disappointment. It's, it's fine. Weeping in self-pity because things have not turned out according to our will. All you need to do is look at the love of Christ who suffered more than you ever will and that he did it for you. And self-pity disappears. And there are tears of impatience. You just don't see why God is doing all this. Why all this is happening. Look at the cross. The, the, The people who were there, they didn't get it. They who didn't get it at the moment were seeing the suffering in that moment that would take away the sin of the world. But they couldn't see it then as an act of salvation. Some would see it later, but not then. Nobody recognized the glory of the cross while it was happening. The cross gives us patience when we cannot see what all this is for. When you plant your tears in a vision of the cross, you'll be transformed and so will your tears. Finally, plant your tears in the assurance of glory. Part of our tears is that it feels as though this is all there will ever be again. That's part of the nature of tears. And and this is true, true especially when we're young. The tears are going to feel like they're going to rob us of everything, of, of, of life and joy forevermore. It feels like being honest with pain and grief is to say that this is all that there's ever going to be. It makes us afraid to, to cry or feel pain. We'll somehow be left in it forever. C.S. Lewis, when his wife died, said, No one ever told me that grief felt so like fear. It's because something inside of us, inside the tears, says that it's never going to get any better. That's terrifying. But there's a witness in the Psalms. Eugene Peterson puts it this way in his book on the Psalms. He says, when he notes that the last five Psalms are all pure praise. Pure praise. There's no laments anymore. No confession or meditation or even thanks. It's all praise and joy in God. Peterson says that what the Psalms are teaching us is that all prayer eventually ends up in praise. It may take a while. Individual Psalms may not get there. But all prayer eventually ends with hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah. So that now we have room to cry. We don't need to be afraid that the tears are going to last forever. We know that one day all tears will be wiped away and end in praise. 
The assurance of glory frees us, strengthens us, empowers us to love, even now, to love others the way Jesus loves us, knowing that there will be tears with the love, tears that will match every ounce of your love. But we have a place to go with them that will turn the tears into glory. There are two reasons to instill this message into a a series on 21st century discipleship. The one is knowing that knowing what to do with the brokenness of our world is going to be a key practice of disciples in the 21st century. In, In digital Babylon, we are weighed down with suffering, the suffering of the world more directly than humans have ever known it. And Jesus, the Psalms, and the Scripture teach us what what do we do with this so that the suffering we know doesn't draw us away from God, but rather to Him as we sow the tears. But i got to also tell you, there's a more personal reason to preach this here this morning. I want to tell you where we're at in the transition process of, of our church we have been wrapping up the SWAT process, the, 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 the time in the season in the transition where we are looking at where we are at. And as also as part of that process, we had the reconciliation team come from the presbytery. And now we are moving into the, the phase where we are going to be visioning for our church. Where, where is God calling us to go from here? But in the, in the process of discovering who we are as a church, there is, it's been amazing. It has been amazing to see the, 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 the faith in this place and the core of folks here that have enormous faith. And, and together we are truly poised to go into a new season of ministry of New Hope Presbyterian Church. And there is a real excitement, a, a new hope growing of what God is doing among us as, as a church. But taking a look at ourselves, we've also seen that we've been through a tough season as well. Through COVID and through the loss of many friends, beloved friends and ministries that have been part of our church. Last Sunday afternoon, I met with a group that calls itself the Agape Group here in the Fireside Room. Over 60 people. And it's a group of people who have left New Hope, for the most part, left New Hope over the years for various reasons. But, but they wanted to keep meeting together, and so they have through the years. I met with them last Sunday afternoon in the fireside room, and, and for me, I just felt two things so strongly. First, I felt joy in seeing that the vibrancy of the faith and the, and the love this group had for each other and for the Lord. But I also felt Grief in seeing personified what you have lost through the years. And, and this is not a time of looking for reasons or explanation. It's just about the pain and the tears that we're left with. And even while we move on to the next exciting stage of our transitional process, we need to act in faith and sow our tears. So that in the season to come in the church, 
we can see them grow into a great harvest. We're going to do that a little bit now. As I was preparing the sermon, it didn't feel right to say all this about lament and then not do it. We have to pray. So we had to shuffle the whole service around, promise we're not going to do this every week. Just maybe when we talk, teach about prayer, we got to pray. And we need to take all our pain to God. And it's not enough for just me to stand up here and do that. And so I asked a, a couple of people to help. And Reuben is going to come and lead us into the prayer time with our typical responsive reading. This one's going to be uh, mostly from Psalm 42, which is another prayer of lament. But then I asked uh, Debbie Green to come and pray. Pray a prayer of lament with and for all of us. <clears throat> 